All right, so if we can be uh, turning your Bibles to John chapter 18, we are going to close out this chapter, uh, picking up where Pastor Ryan left off. And there's just a few things I want to say to kind of get our minds and our hearts ready uh, for this sermon. Um, this is kind of just like a recap to where we're at is we are at the place where Jesus Christ has been met in the garden uh, by Judas and the soldiers that were sent by the high priest, and he has been arrested. And now he's been brought before uh, the Sanhedrin. He's also been brought before the high priest, and uh, they will be dealing with him. And that's what we're going to march through, um, is we're going to uh, see if you can kind of follow along as we get through these trials. There's actually about six different trials that Jesus goes through. Sometimes you'll look in your Bible, and it'll say the trial of Jesus Christ. Um, and you'll go, oh, that's interesting. But if you notice, he gets tossed back and forth all across uh, Jerusalem. And in doing so, he actually meets with uh, Jewish leaders three times and Gentiles uh, leaders three times. And nobody can establish what is the truth about Jesus Christ. And I find that fascinating because you have all this time being spent dragging out uh, the information. And if you could see uh, the text that we sent out this weekend, uh, it was kind of like this is the tagline of this whole service is the truth on trial. It says that when people come looking for the facts, not everybody's ready for the truth. And that's really what this is happening is people are confronting Jesus Christ, but not really wanting the answers to the questions that they ask, because the more that you promote yourself in front of Jesus, the more you realize it's you that's the problem. Uh, there's a famous quote that I got this weekend that I did not plan to get this. Like, I didn't go looking for this, but it just came uh, to me in an email, and I just want to read it to you how powerful it is. It says, the truth is not what you want it to be. It is what it is. And you must bend to its power or live a lie. And I find that very uh, uh, fascinating because this is a, a, a quote from a samurai who faced a lot of wars and battles. And I think he, you know, he would say, you know, the truth is what it is. You could kind of understand that from somebody who's seen, who's seen the facts of life on a battlefield, right? But I love what he says. You either bend to the power or you live a lie. And I want to just ask you this. As we're marching through the text that we're about to, to read... Ask yourself to these people that Jesus is facing, are they bending to the power of the truth or are they living a lie? The counterpoint that you could ask yourself is, am I bending to the power and am I uh, ready to receive the truth or am I living a lie? So join me in John chapter 18. We're going to read all the way to the end and then we're going to go back and unpack it. So join me in John chapter 18, verse 19, verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came to come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. And when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? And he denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? 
Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. And by now, it was early morning, and to avoid, a cere- to, uh, to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked them, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that, is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. And with this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at a time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Just really quickly, let's pray before we dive back in this text. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you and I praise you for just the fact that you were the kind of God that would pursue us in this way, that you would face this kind of accusation, you would face this kind of sin, you would face this kind of even blasphemy to your face, and yet you did it all for a goal, and the goal was the people in this room. So let us study this and understand why you did it and why your heart is so for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we're going through this, you can see what is going on. There is truth on trial. There's two charges that were brought against Jesus at this time. And the first charge was the charge of blasphemy. And the blasphemous charge was you, you, you I don't know if you would say rightly proclaim or wrongly proclaim from their position, you said that you're the son of God. And we don't, we don't receive that. The second one is from the Roman government, sedition, which is which the Jews were pushing towards the Romans. They're saying, you came here to overthrow the Roman government. And now we have to ask ourselves as we're walking through this, is he guilty of either one of those? And that's what's really on trial. Is he the son of God? That's the most important thing about you as a Christian is who Jesus is. Not what you think you know, but who Jesus actually is, is the most important thing about you because you must either bend to the will of Jesus Christ if he is truly what he says he is, or you must live in a lie. You could say that Jesus Christ is either truthfully the greatest gift that God ever gave us, or he's a charlatan. He's a, he's, he's a trickster. And then on the other side is, was his goal to come over to fight politics, to, to build a castle, to gain land? Or was his goal to come to win us back from sin and death? And that's what's on trial. So you can look at that and question that for yourself as we're reading through this. Now join me in verse 19, and we'll unpack as we go through this again. It says, Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. 
And so you can see that Annas is coming to him in the most biased way. Annas, um, I want to give you just a few kind of perspectives on who Annas is. Caiaphas was a high priest that was installed by the Roman government, which means he was pro-Roman. Caiaphas is the kind of guy, like, imagine if uh, another nation invaded America, right? And we're all sitting here in church, and somebody kicked me off stage. And like, say it's North Korea. Let's just throw that there. Like Red Dawn. If you've ever seen that movie. And they just like, are like, okay, Joey won't be teaching anymore. We have this guy that's very pro us. And in fact, we will dictate what he says. Now you can see where the situation, we're kind of moving into kind of a kangaroo court, right? Well, who is this guy? What's his justification? What does he know? We don't really care. We just know that he's for Rome. That's what Rome's saying. And on top of that, Annas is now operating in behind the scenes. Annas would be uh, distant related to Caiaphas. And he's going, you know what? Let me just do what I need to do over here. Uh, Let me do what I can. You be the puppet ruler and I'll do this over here. And he's now asking Jesus, if you go through the other gospels, we don't have time today. He's kind of asking uh, uh, Jesus a very like pointed question. It's like he shows up to the court and he goes like this. So what did you do that's wrong? I mean, there was like, okay, what? I just showed up here. You guys grabbed me in the middle of the night. So tell me what you did. Tell me everything wrong you've ever did in your life. That's the kind of questions he's asking. So you can see that it's coming across like, you know what? What are you guilty of? And you're going to find out what Jesus is guilty of today. What's also fascinating, too, is Annas' name means mercy. Who's not doling out any mercy? Annas. Who ultimately will dole out all the mercy? Jesus Christ. And so I find that fascinating. Um, also, you, I want to put this as a first point. As we can see, God is not the victim of our circumstances. He is the director of it. This is the first point. You could see, why is Jesus allowing himself to be in this position? How did Jesus, the most powerful person in all of the world, stand here and take this? If you had all the power and authority of Jesus Christ, would you? Um, I would tell you I would not. The first moment somebody sassed me, electricity would have shot out of my fingers and gave that person a great fry. I don't know if you've seen the cartoons when the person's hair sticks out. There'd be a lot of people in Israel with hair sticking out because they challenged me. Um, But that's not who Jesus is, right? Jesus is walking into a situation, and I want to point this out to you, into a situation that he did not create. He did not want this situation. But nonetheless, we were in this situation. So where did Christ meet us? In the most undesirable situation that we could be in. We are a people. Let's not push ourselves too far away from the Pharisees or push ourselves too far away from the Jews in the story and go, well, if I was there, I wouldn't do that. But how many times has Jesus Christ come to you and you've been angry about the, maybe the testimony that he's brought to you? I am pure and I am holy and you are not. And you, mm, no. Or has somebody come to you and said, hey, I have a real challenging word from the Lord I just want to share with you. And you're like, well, that's not for me. That's not for me. I'm very angry at the situation. Who are you to judge me? And I'm like, I'm nobody. I'm just reading the Bible. And then I was praying about you. And the Lord said, share this with you. And you're like, and you get so angry at that moment, right? But yet, out of the most undesirable situation, Jesus brings forth the most desirable outcome to save you from yourself. To save you from yourself. And we can look at this and go, why... How is he orchestrating this? Why would he orchestrate it? Why would he subject himself to this? Well, in fact, I want to point to an earlier verse in chapter, uh, Mark chapter 10, and I want you to see what he said. By the way, this is so fascinating to me before we read this. I know I, I say this a lot, but have you ever just read the Bible and be like, I just don't get it, or maybe I'm dumb, or maybe I need to go to Bible college, or maybe I just need more coffee. Something's wrong. 
I'm reading the Bible and I'm just not getting it. Well, I want to hear, I want you to hear how pointed Jesus is when he says to the disciples and they don't get it. Verse 32 on the screen. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished. And while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Verse 33, we're going up to Jerusalem. I feel like this is like my mom telling me, like, put on your clothes, get ready for church. And I'm like, I always act bewildered when she was like, when I was a little kid, get in the car, it's time. I'm like, where did the time go? Where did everything happen? Like my mom told me, like, eat your breakfast, put on your shoes. I put your clothes out, you know, like all these things. This is, look at the laundry list Jesus walks through. We're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Is that happening? Yes, they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Is that happening? Yes, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, I just want to point out to you, Mr. Uh, person who studies the Bible and goes, I don't get it. These same disciples who heard the laundry list of what was about to happen to Jesus Christ, did any of them bring it up when they went into hiding after Jesus was dead and buried? Did anybody go, hey, by the way, guys, I know we're all crying. This is sad. We lost Jesus. But in 72 hours, he's going to be right back. I don't know. We should, maybe we should just hang out, watch Netflix for 72 hours. I don't know what we should do. Put your feet up. He's going to be fine. Did you ever hear that from a disciple? Have you ever felt that way? Where's Jesus in all of this? He's abandoned us. I don't let you know uh, the moment, and I make this, this point all the time, the moment I get a flat tire, my first thing is, why has God abandoned me? on the side of 512 or I-95. That's the, my first feeling. But really, when you think about it, when you just look at this verse, you realize that Jesus is the director of your circumstances. If you're ever wondering if God has a handle on your situation, he does. He has a plan. If you ever feel like God might be overwhelmed by you or your condition, he's not. He's absolutely not. He's standing in the middle of your mess and he's fixing it, and he's loving you the whole time. And where is he pulling you? More towards him. Let's continue. Look at verse 20. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I did. Now, you could read this text and kind of like miss it because, you know, Jesus is boldly just proclaiming the truth, right? Not one time did I say anything uh, like amazing in secret, right? I stood in the temple right next to you guys. I stood in the synagogue most of the time when the Pharisees were picking up rocks, right? It's not like you missed me. I was very open and plain about what I said, but you can uh, kind of miss this in this moment if you don't think about this. Where is Jesus standing with the Sanhedrin at night? In the temple, in the middle of the night when nobody's around, right? And what is Jesus saying? I spoke openly in the light of day. He's playing ping pong right back at them. Do you know that it was actually illegal to have a trial at night? In fact, it was uh, more important that it would go like this, is that part of our legal system is based on this ancient legal system because it was done so well. You had to do everything during the light of the day. There couldn't be done anything in secret. You had to have witnesses because you could incriminate yourself. If people badgered you enough and you got out of sorts, right, you could just condemn, oh, you're oh, fine, you've been yelling at me all night, I'm exhausted, I'm tired. No, the Jews said, no, you can't do that. You can't badger the witness. You have to actually bring in witnesses. And what is Jesus saying? 
Well, of the two of us, I spoke in the light in the day, and my witnesses spoke for me. What are you doing? You're hiding me. You're hiding me in the middle of the night because you don't want the truth to come out. I, I find that a fascinating moment because I have to ask myself, do I ever do that? When the accusations of what may be happening in my life, do I push Jesus to the side because I don't want him to, to hear what he has to say? I know what he has to say. I don't want to know what he has to say. I don't want to hear it. And I think that's also amazing. I just want to give you another point, too, is that it was illegal to run a trial right on the eve of a holiday. What holiday are we running into? Passover. So are these men doing anything in the position of correct judgment? Who are these people to judge Jesus Christ when they themselves can't even judge themselves? Just think about that. And now put yourself in that position. Who am I to judge Jesus' methods when I can't even put the truth of me on trial? I can't even look in the mirror and confront the truth that is actually here. And I go, you know what, Lord? Um, I just spent the afternoon burning bags of popcorn, but you don't know how to run the universe. Jesus is like, I've never burned popcorn in the microwave. I, uh, I, I was walking into Winn-Dixie the other day, and I tripped over the, you know, the parking the space divider that I saw was coming. It's painted. It's bright. And I tripped over it. And I said, you know what, Lord? Maybe you should listen to me more often. And the Lord's like, I never tripped over anything like that. I've never been late to a meeting. And I'm like, you know what? You're right, Jesus. Maybe I should take a step back and just listen to you, creator of heaven and earth, on how to do life, right? The one that spoke light into existence. Let there be light, and then there was light. Maybe I should take a step back and let you judge me and not me judge you because I'm in no position to judge. And that is what the Lord is saying. You know, basically, I would come up with a word. I wrote this in one of my uh, devos when I was going over this. There's a real nice word for me judging Jesus Christ. It's called a hypocrite. Right now, we have a room full of hypocrites yelling at Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22. And when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the, in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? Jesus said, if I had said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? And then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. What I love about this moment is Jesus has pretty much just put it out on the table. The ball's in your court. I have spoken the truth. What are you going to do about it? Well, this particular man slapped him, right? And I always think about this moment. How much of our life is based on our perspective? Just think about this. What this man, what would he tell you? What would he be feeling today if he found out the truth? Like at this moment, you obviously know he doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah. But the moment that he found out that Jesus Christ was the true Messiah, what would have been his reaction? If you had to guess, if it was you, what would have been your reaction? I mean, it would be immediate face to the floor, wouldn't it have been? The floor would have been soaked with my tears. And all those scenes that you see in like, maybe if you ever watch a Jesus movie, when somebody reaches down to touch his feet, right? That would have been maybe the most hope that I had if I could just ask for forgiveness at the feet of Jesus. And I just think about this, how much of an amazing God who is infinite in his wisdom, infinite in his power, and I'm a finite creature, I can't actually tell you with certainty, with actual certainty, what's going to happen in the next 10 seconds. In the next 10 seconds, somebody was laying in their house in Oklahoma and an airplane engine fell on their bedroom. Could you have guessed that? No. If you could ask, like, what's happening in the next 10 seconds? Well, the next 10 seconds, I'm going to have breakfast in bed. And then, no, you're not. 
That's the kind of power that the Lord has. He can see everything. In fact, the Bible says that God wrote your whole life out before you even lived it. Before you even knit in your mother's womb, the Lord has seen your whole life. And yet in this particular position, I have to say, my perspective, Lord, can I lend you how I see things? In this particular place, the stinger for me is, I, I just think about this, and all of my sin, all of my behavior, I like to justify who I am, Lord, if you knew what I was up against. But the Lord would say, all of your sin and all your behavior is because of you, not because of what's around you. You know who you're accountable to? Yourself. You look in the mirror, the only time that I've ever wanted to reach out and slap Jesus Christ is when he told me who I was. And I know some of you were like, well, literally, if Jesus Christ was standing here, you wouldn't do that. Of course not. Like, just so you guys know, I'm not in a, like, I'm trying to get fisticuffs with Jesus Christ. But I just like, how many times have we done that metaphorically with our life? Have we said when the Lord said, go do this, and I've done the opposite? But then he speaks the truth. Now, I want to remind you, did anybody answer Jesus? But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Did Jesus get an answer? No, he did not get an answer. And you don't want to know why nobody in the room answered him? Uh, Annas was, like I said, the guy behind the scenes orchestrating everything that's happening in the temple. Annas was in charge of two things at the temple specifically. He was in charge of the money changing, and he was in charge of the sacrificial animal sale. What just happened a couple of days ago that got the Jews all excited when Jesus entered into the temple? He just went into the temple and flipped it, right? He flipped all the tables. He built a whip and he scourged all the people that were ripping off everyone who was trying to buy a sacrificial animal for Passover. For those of you who might know, that's what you would do. You would take your money. Like, let's pretend we would just take all of our money and we would go over to Jerusalem. Well, guess what? American dollars don't work in the temple. You would have to take your American dollars and, and, and exchange it for temple money. But what would they do? They would mark it all the way up. One dollar, you know, let's say a little higher, $12 of American dollars would equal one temple dollar. So that's a markup, right? And then you would go to get a lamb, and a lamb would normally cost you maybe, say, $30, but these are special temple lambs. They're $130. And so you could see for a group of people that maybe in an agriculture, agrarian society, right, they would save all their money all year long to just go to the temple to beg for forgiveness by handing the lamb over to the priest so it could be sacrificed and its blood could be shed to atone for that family, right? And guess what? You would be wiped out. So what if you couldn't afford it? Now how do you feel? And Jesus Christ would uh, you know, aptly say, this is not what church is about. I'm just going to paraphrase. He would say the temple. But my house is a house of worship, right? It's a place for people to come find sanctuary. And how many times has church hurt people because of the selfishness of the leaders that are there? Because they didn't promote Jesus Christ. What did they promote? Themselves. And this is why Annas is standing there watching Jesus get hit, and he doesn't answer him. Why doesn't he answer him? Because he doesn't want to admit the truth of himself. And of course, what did he do? I'm going to turn you over to somebody else because I'm done with you. Did we ever even find the truth? Did we even pursue the truth? No, we did not. Meanwhile, we're going to cut to another scene. Join me in chapter, or verse 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of the disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. And one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a moment, a rooster crowed. 
And just so you guys know, just a recap here, Jesus had followed, we believe it's the apostle John into the temple. John, so you guys know, if there's like difference in personalities, Peter's really impulsive. John is really cool with everybody. John's like very loving. I don't know if you get that out of the book of John. He's like, everything Jesus does is awesome. Everything Jesus does is great. I mean, you could tell why he was Jesus' best friend. He was called John the Beloved. He actually had great access to the temple. John walked right into the temple, right? Now, no problem. Peter, on the other hand, was real hesitant because he knows what he just, I just tried to cut off some dude's ear in the, in the, um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and here I am, I, I'm, I'm feeling like really pushed to the limit by what's been happening, right? I'm the one that said I would fight to the death for Jesus, and now Jesus is on trial. He, they grabbed him and they took him, right? And in the middle of that, do you guys know that Jesus had said the night that Peter made this declaration at the Passover, he said, you know, Jesus, man, if, you know, I would take a bullet for you. And Jesus said, that's nice, but you're going to deny me three times. And on the third time, the, the rooster will crow. And the rooster just crowed. In fact, I want you to see in other Gospels how this plays out. Matthew 26, 74 on the screen says, he then began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. I always find it interesting why Peter, who's trying to play it cool, right, and kind of drift in the background and watch Jesus from afar, would go so ballistic, it's kind of a weird moment, right? And I just thought, I thought about this for a long time, and this is kind of what I was praying through. I was like, would I act this way? Well, it sounds like a guy that's overcompensating, right? I'm not that guy. How dare you make that accusation against me? I mean, it just sounds like he's really laying it on thick. But then I also thought about this. You know, it's really easy for us to think of that we would be heroically uh, put our life on the line for Jesus Christ. That's a real easy thing for us to say if you don't like your life. If you don't like your situation, it's easy for you to say, you know what? I would die for Jesus Christ. Well, that's great. But that's not what Jesus asked Peter to do. Jesus asked Peter not to die for him, but to live for him. And I find that a strong challenge to me because going out with a blaze of glory can be easy. But a real problem and a real struggle and a real battle could be taking up your cross and following Jesus every day. Because the real battle is you. And the biggest thing is, is that when you look at Peter's life, there's a lot of times that he was impulsively living, challenging Jesus at every corner as Jesus is promoting and prophesying and telling him, this is why I've come. I've come to go to the cross. And Peter's like, no, no. Jesus, you didn't come to die on the cross. You come to hang out with me and do the things I want to do. And Jesus was like, you're, you're so far out of line, you don't even know. If I don't die for you, then you'll never have eternity. This is the, the, the Peter that we're dealing with. And I think about this, is how many times have I had a hard time with what Jesus has said to me internally and because I don't want to acknowledge the real truth because I don't want to acknowledge real change. That I've built my life around the falsities of what I believe to be true and then come to find out that Jesus was speaking the truth the whole time and now it is me that has to bend to Jesus' word, not Jesus bend to my word. Jesus shows up in my life because of the mess that I've made and I would like gladly go out in a blaze of glory. But what's really hard is for me to go, you know what? Christ is right. Joey, you have to start making real change today. There's real things, real problems. The reason why Jesus went to the cross is because of you, Joey, not because of what's going on around you. And now you have to hold yourself accountable. And I want you to look at this next moment, Luke chapter 22, verse 61. In the middle of all this, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Marinate in that for a second, right? Jesus, I would take a bullet for you. No, you won't. You'll deny me three times. 
Jesus, you should never go to the cross. Get behind me, Satan. I have to go to the cross. If I don't go to the cross, you have eternity. And in that moment, their eyes meet. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. Can you imagine seeing Christ's eyes in that moment? I always wonder this is how would you, how would you feel if you put yourself in Peter's sandals, right? How would you feel in that moment? And then I also wonder this, what was Jesus' eyes look like? I would say it's fair to say this because he's, he's kind of shown it before. Would you think he was disappointed? Do you think it would be fair for Jesus to be disappointed even though he knew that was coming? I'm the one abandoned. I'm the one up here for you and you're abandoning me. You're disowning me. How about this? Do you think they were still loving? Or maybe even forgiving? I, I want to propose this. What if they were all three? This brings us to a really important point. The truth is, no matter the crisis, Christ himself is your answer. No matter the crisis, Christ himself is your answer. I imagine that that moment that Jesus and Peter locked eyes, that Jesus was wrecked, or sorry, Peter was wrecked, not just, you know, heartbroken in the moment of losing his Savior, but he was heartbroken all the way down to his, like, soul for this reason. You know what? Everything that Christ said about me was true. We go to find out, there's a spoiler alert, that Peter, after the death and burial and even resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter would run back to his original industry. He was a fisherman. And so he abandoned his ministry. He abandoned his calling. Even though he spent three years of the Lord pouring into him, he abandoned it because he didn't like what the Lord had said to him in that moment, right? And then he goes back to his industry, and, and he just goes back to fishing, and who shows up on the shore? Jesus Christ, after the resurrection, pursuing Peter and coming up to Peter and saying, hey, I know you denied me three times, but I'm going to press into you three times. And I'm the press that I'm going to give you is, will you come back and do ministry with me? You know, you have these moments in your life that like, you know, when crisis hits where you go, you know, um, I don't know the answer. And I, even if this person shows up, I don't know if they have the answer, but I would feel a lot better if they were here. Do you have that person in your life? Uh, I, you, that person you might call from a car accident or you're standing in the emergency room and you're like, will you just get down here and I just would feel so much better and they would lighten the room. For me, it was my grandfather. I'm going to tell you a quick story. There was a time I was standing um, um, out in a field with my grandfather and they had land in Parkland. They had a bunch of acreage and they used to rent out stables to people with horses and somebody had bought an Appaloosa horse and if you know what an Appaloosa is, it's one of these wild horses that they, they got, and it really was wild, and it was gorgeous. It was spotted. It was beautiful, and it just was so muscular, and I, as a little, like, kid, I think I was about five or six years old, my grandfather said, now, what I want you to do is you can go in any field but the south field. Just don't go in the south field. That horse is wild, and I said, great, Grandpa, and as soon as Grandpa turned his back, and I said, where's the south field? Where can I go? And so I headed over to the south field, and I ran in there, and I, I thought I, if I grabbed an apple, I could really entice the horse, and as soon as I got into the field, that horse chased me. He was biting. He was kicking, and I ran for my life, and I remember backing up into a grove of trees, and the horse was still coming out. If you can imagine a five-year-old that's really skinny and little, he's trying to fit between the, the, you know, the, the stems of the trees and the branches and everything, and I'm pushing back, and this horse is still coming at me, and I'm like, there's an apple. I'm trying to give you something nice. Let's be lay nice, and all I could think in my, in, my, in my mind and my heart is, I know I messed up, but I need you right now, Grandpa. And I remember drawing in a huge breath, right? 
And I used, I was going to say the first letter, the G of the grandpa. I went to say it and I was going grip and there he was. My grandpa came out of nowhere. It was the most heroic thing I've ever seen. I remember looking over at him. I'm like, wow, he's a hero. My grandfather, I've never seen anybody do this. That horse reared up and he was coming at me and my grandfather put his hand on his chest and pushed him and he had a stick in his hand and he said, get back and get back. And that horse was biting and kicking at my grandfather. And I went, grandpa, you're doing real good. Thank you for saving me. And I remember my grandfather looked back at me and was like, and I was like, no, no, I know I'm in trouble, Grandpa, but I love you. You're my hero. And I just went like that. And he chased that horse away, and that horse ran away. And I just remember thinking, wow, what a moment. The person that I hurt the most is the first person that I called, and that person showed up right when I needed them. Isn't that Christ for us? The person that I've hurt the most is Jesus Christ, and the person that I need the most is the person that showed up on the cross, and the person that shows up continually in my life every day. And you think about this. My knees were shaking. My feet, my hand, my whole body was trembling. But the only thing I could do is just call out for my grandpa. How many times have you been in that situation where you're just in that, I'm at the end? And Jesus Christ says, I haven't gone anywhere. I'm right here. I, have, I knew you were going to do what you were going to do. And I'm right here. Your crisis is not your situation. Your crisis is you. I went into that field. You walked into your sin. And where was Jesus Christ? Right there with you. I want to put another quote out to you. A good lawyer knows the law, but a great lawyer knows the judge. I was watching an old TV show. I don't know what it was. It's, we were using the tuner, and I was watching this old TV show, and it was like kind of going in and out with static. And uh, I was trying to bend the antenna, and that's the line that I heard in the court trial. And I was like, that's really, really good. And you just think about it. It's a really humorous line, but just think about this. You know, it says the Holy Spirit is your advocate, right? But just think about this. Who sent the advocate? Who was your lawyer? Who stands up in the trial for you in the trial of your life? The Holy Spirit. But who sent him? God. Jesus, God. It's amazing to me this, is that God is directing the lawyer to you. And then on top of that, when the verdict come in, comes in, who pays that price? God himself, Jesus. The whole trial is set up to this truth. You have been you know, tested, you've been tried, and you've been found wanting. And then as soon as that verdict comes in, the judge lays the gavel down and says, I will now pay that. It's amazing to me that in the middle of our mess, we have our, find our greatest need, we find out we have the greatest God. We have the greatest judge and we have the greatest lawyer and they're willing to do all the work. Which brings us to our next truth. Our failure is the stage to rebuild us in his image when we turn our life over to him. Our failure is the stage to rebuild us in his image when we turn our life over to him. You know, we could look at Peter and think of him as a whipping post, right? It's just like Peter, uh, pastors do this all the time. Don't be a Peter. Look at Peter. He's making all these mistakes. But how many times has Peter done this? And I look at him and I go, I've done the same thing. Trying to do it on my own. And the Lord shows up to me and goes, what are you doing? You're not strong enough to take off that horse. Thinking I have the answers. I can hand that horse an apple. How many times have we played nice with sin only to have sin grab a hold of us and ragdoll us and toss us all over? And the first thing we do is we call out to Jesus, Jesus, save us. Save us from who? From us, from ourselves. I just think about this too. Peter is standing in this moment trying to think of all the things he could do to help Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ is going to the cross to pay the price for Peter. He picks up a sword and he tries to slay a guy and he gets an ear. I think about this all the time. Peter, do you see how big that guy's head is? 
Do you see how little his ear is? I mean, really, if I needed you to kill somebody, I can't even count on you to do that. You missed his whole head. You have no aim. I don't need you to be my warrior. If I needed a warrior, I'll call down, what does Jesus say in the garden? A legion of angels, and I want to give you a point. Do you think angels miss? No. Just think about this. God called down one angel in the book of Kings, and it killed 185,000 people in one night. Peter, you barely clipped an ear. You are not the person that you think you are. I came to save you. You didn't come to save me. I don't need your help. What I need is your submission. I need you to relax. I need you to come to me and rest. I need you to let me do the hard work as you watch. You can join me. I would love for you to join me. But who's doing the heavy lifting in this relationship? Jesus Christ. And what is he doing? He's rebuilding us into his image. Eventually, the same Peter who was standing in this, uh, this courtyard and denying Jesus would be the same Jesus or the same Peter that would stand in front of people in Jerusalem at Pentecost and preach the gospel and said, you guys murdered our Savior. No denial there, right? He stand up boldly and proclaim, you guys have the blood of our Savior on your hands. And now I'm here to boldly proclaim the truth. And the truth is, he came here to save us and 3,000 people got saved that day. Why? Because he was rebuilt in the image of Jesus Christ by the power of Jesus Christ through the spirit of Jesus Christ. And at no point did Peter rely on his cleverness at that, at that time. Just think about the same Peter that was so impulsive and in his flesh would be stuck in a prison and praying for God's, you know, just help. Lord, I, don't, I can't get out of this prison. If you want me out of this prison... I'll get out of this prison. In the book of Acts, it records an angel walked in and said, let's go. And Peter said, okay, let's go, angel. Let me put on my coat and let's go. We got more ministry to do. This is no longer a selfish, fleshly Peter. This is a supernatural, driven Peter. I think about this all the time, that this is the same Peter that would go on to be the foundation of the very church that we're standing in. His confession that Jesus Christ was the Savior is what the Lord said, I will build my church upon this rock. It doesn't matter where you start. It matters where you end. The Lord has come to do the heavy work. The Lord has come to do the rebuilding. Join me in verse 28. Look, at it says this. And then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. And by now it was early morning. And to avoid ceremony on cleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked them, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. I love this answer because it's the worst answer. What's he guilty of? He's bad. He's a real bad guy and he does bad things. Okay, what did they do? And I love Pilate getting right to the cut to the chase, right? What did he do? But I just love this. Is think about this as we're unfolding this is really what they're arguing over is that he's so pure that we don't want to talk about it. Think about that. He's so pure and he's so good, we actually don't want to bring the charges in front of you. Look at verse 31. Pilate said, so Roman, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone. They objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Now I just want to stop here and pause and just show you how this is still a kangaroo court. Is it right for a Jewish person to kill another Jewish person over a, Jew or over a religious problem. Absolutely. They did it all the time. In fact, Stephen was one of the first martyrs, right? And what did they do? They grabbed him because he was proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And what did they do? They hit him with stones. They stoned him to death. At no point do we hear, and the Roman guards came and broke this up and said, why are you killing somebody? In fact, the Romans didn't even care. So these people are lying. And I want to let you know why they're lying. 
One, Jesus is going to fulfill the prophecy, right? Cursed is the man who hangs from the tree, the Old Testament says. And where would Jesus go? To the tree, to go to the cross to die. And that's what was prophesied. Remember what Jesus said in the book of Matthew, I have to be turned over to the Gentiles to bleed and die, right? But what was the Jewish like way of killing people? They would grab stones and stone you. But the Bible says Jesus was not gonna be stoned. He was gonna hang from a tree. So that's true. So Jesus is prophesying it. But there's another side of this. The Jewish people are so mad. The Jewish leaders are so mad at Jesus Christ, they didn't want him to die by stoning. They wanted him to suffer. They wanted him to get beaten. They wanted him to get flogged, and they wanted him to suffer the worst form of death, murder in the world, is crucifixion. It's a very painful way to die. Suffocation, beating, hands through there. You're constantly trying to push up on the cross, and you know what? They wanted that. But they also wanted to do it because you know why? They wanted to be ceremonially clean, right? They didn't want it to be on their hands. But look at how many rules they've already broken. One, they lied about what they can do. Two, they did a court in the middle of the night, right? They're doing everything wrong. They also did it on the eve of the Passover. But you have to ask yourself, is this person still, no matter what I think, is he the king of the Jews? Look at verse 33. Pilate then went back inside and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? It's interesting because really what Jesus is doing is he's actually pursuing Pilate's heart. When they said, are you the king of the Jews? We could translate it to say like this, are you the actual Messiah? Are you the Messiah? And so Jesus, not trying to fight him as a judge, actually asks his heart. He stops looking at Pilate, the judge, and he starts looking at Pilate, the man. And he says, are you asking me because you want to know if there is a Messiah? Or are you asking me because you're worried that I'm a threat to Rome? And look at the response that he gives him. He says, or did others talk to you about me? Look at Pilate's response. Am I a Jew? Your own people and your chief priests handed you over to me. Now verse 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. It's interesting because what Jesus is actually doing is he's challenging Pilate on his control and his authority. Pilate has the audacity to think that he's in control of this situation, but I'm going to let you know how Jesus lays this on the line for him. You know, you can look at authority this way. Where does our army or where does our police get their authority? From us. We give them authority. We give them the authority. The reason why a police officer will come to your house and break up a disturbance or fight for you or pull somebody over that's speeding is because we've said this should be the speed of this road or these are the laws that should not break. It's the people who give the authority because the people can actually vote for those things to be disbanded and they will be no more. And so he's actually appealing this to Pilate. He's saying, Pilate, where do you get your authority? You come from another place. Are you Jewish? And of course, Pilate has said, no, I'm not even Jewish. This is a Jewish thing. So where do you get your authority? He's like, I come from another place, and that's Rome. What is Pilate without Rome? Just another guy. And Jesus Christ, he goes, I'm just a guy and standing in front of you, standing in front of you, but where does my power come from? My kingdom is from another place. I'm just a person without God. I am Yes, the son of the Lord, but without him, I'm nothing. And so he's challenging him on this place. If my people were to fight, it would be kind of silly because I come from a supernatural place. I didn't come here. So he's actually saying to the Roman, you came here and you stole land and you enslaved people and you're forcing them into attacks. And what did you do that? By violence. I came here and what am I winning the people over with? The truth. And what is the truth? We're all sinners. And what have I brought? Love. My love and my forgiveness is winning 
convert after convert after convert. The only weapon that I need right now is the truth, and you'd be apt to listen to it. And in this moment, he's saying, will you justify this moment by saying this? Is this about Rome or is this about you? And I'm standing in front of you. You must face the spiritual battle. The reason why my Christians don't fight is because the battle was never theirs. The one who wins our victories is Jesus Christ himself. And that's why we're not saying that we're pacifists, but what we're saying is that when we have a problem, when we face a crisis, we don't do it in our own strength. We get on our knees and pray because we know the Lord has already gone before us and prepared the way. Look at verse 37. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone, that's, uh, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So Jesus is saying, I am a king, but guess what? I'm not a wor worried about politics or military economics because I want to let you know something, Pilate. One day, Rome won't even be a thing. One day, Rome won't even exist in the way that you think of it is. It, it will be a place where it'll be one of the kingdoms under my kingdom. Look at Revelations 11.15 on the screen. One day, there's going to be an angel that sounds a trumpet, and there'll be loud voices of heaven, and the kingdom of the world has become um, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. You know what? Right now, in this moment, Jesus Christ is not worried about our kingdoms. Jesus Christ is worried about our hearts. Jesus Christ has come to claim that victory. And Pilate struggles right now is, you know what? I don't have time to face this spiritual kingdom because I don't have time to face my own spiritual problems. And Jesus says, you have such little time, it's the only thing you should face. Look at Pilate's response. What is truth, retorted Pilate? With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. So really, it should be court adjourned, but I want to let you know if you're, if you're not guilty, you're not guilty. But Pilate is actually such a coward of the moment that he wouldn't face the moment that it would actually say, and history tells us, that he would get transferred out of Israel. And then he would eventually commit suicide because he put all of the truth in this, I am what Rome says I am. Are you what the world says you are? Or are you what Jesus says you are? You have to ask yourself that question today. Are you what the mirror says that you are? Are you what your family says you are? Are you what maybe your friends or coworkers say, or even your condition or crisis? Are you who Jesus says you are? I want to let you know who I am. I am a broken sinner that has been blood-bought, forgiven, and sealed in the Holy Spirit by Jesus Christ. I belong to him. So no matter where I start, that's my ending. Look at verse 39. But it is your custom for me to release to you one of the prisoners at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? So he's saying, do you want me to release this Messiah? And look at their surprising response. They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. I want to let you know this is fascinating because there's a couple of things that are interesting here. Barabbas would actually be one of the three crosses that were prepared that day, right? And there was two thieves that hung on either side of Jesus Christ. Barabbas was supposed to be the one in the middle. He was kind of a guy that was actually a bloodthirsty murderer. And as you can see, if he was like living in the time of like George Washington, you could say he's a freedom fighter, but really he loved murder so much, the Jewish people released him to go do murder. That's really who he was. He just didn't really care. He indiscriminately killed and stole, right? And so now he's on trial. And you could say that of all the people in the world, Jesus Christ and Barabbas could have a really interesting conversation. Yes, Jesus took my place on the cross, but he really took Barabbas's place on the cross, right? And Barabbas is in this moment probably thinking, what in the world? They're going to release me? 
And Jesus would say, I would live, I will die, I'm sorry, I will die the death of Barabbas so that Barabbas could live the life that I, that I gave him. You live the life that Jesus Christ is giving you because he died your death. Just think about this. You're not only supposed to live your life, you're supposed to live a life that's on the level of Jesus Christ. This brings us to our last point. Jesus' actions say, I will die your death so you could live my life. As you're writing that down, I want you to just focus on something as I, as I walk through this. I will die your death so you could live my life. The Bible doesn't record it because it's been translated um, so many times from, you know, from Hebrew and, and Greek and then all the way up to English. But Barabbas' full name is this, Yeshua Barabba. I'm going to give you that where, where Jesus' full name is, if you would say Jesus Christ, would be uh, Yeshua Hamashiach. So when they were standing on the thing, it was like, will you give, me, will you give us Yeshua Hamashiach? Or will you give us Yeshua Barabba? The idea is this, is that his name is son of a father. It's kind of like a really plain Jane name. It's just like John Doe almost, right? It's son of a father, Barabba, right? Basically, you're saying, will you give me the son of a father, any son of a father, even though he could not only not save Israel, he couldn't save himself? Or would you still choose the one that could not only die the death that you could die, but he could save himself? You know, Jesus died the death of a resurrection, right? Jesus laid down his life. And I just think about this. I stood on a stage with Jesus how many times in my life thinking this one thought? As in the list of all of my sins were poured out, and as I'm on trial, how many times I said, yeah, Jesus, go and die for me so that I can go and live the life I want. Not realizing that the reason that I can live the life that I have is because Jesus died for me. And Jesus stands there silently, hearing all the sins that you've been accused of in all of your life, and he quietly listens, and he quietly hears you roar, and he quietly hears you rage against him, and he goes this, you know what? I knew you were going to do this. I will pay this. I will do this for you. I love you. Which brings us to this last point. God is not the victim of your sin. He's the volunteer for your punishment. God is not the victim of your sin. You know, sometimes I can look at Jesus on the cross and feel really bad. Why did you have to do that for me? I can't believe this. And Jesus stands right there in the middle of it and says, I, I would get in between your sin and your death so that we could be together forever because if I don't, you'll never know the love and the depth of my love. And then if we don't, then we'll be separated forever. And he doesn't do this with anger and he doesn't do this with a harsh response. He does it silently as the list of your sins are listed. And I think more importantly, I think about this. This trial is not just for Jesus Christ. Think of all the people that Jesus is standing there silently for. Not just Barabbas, but Pontius Pilate too. The Pharisees. All the Jews yelling. Even the Roman soldiers that were about to beat him. Jesus would die for them. And I want to put this in your mind. He chose you. All of your sins, he chose them too. He chose everything about you and said, let me pay that price. Which brings us to our last verse and we'll close. I know it went a little over today. Thank you for your patience. 2 Corinthians 5.21. This describes our situation perfectly, standing on that platform with Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just think about that. Everything that you are, Everything that you've rebelled against in Jesus Christ, every sin that you've ever committed was just a dirty stain on your life. And Jesus stooped down from heaven, looked at you and said, you, you're not good enough. You won't make it to heaven. 
I volunteer for this situation. The only way that you'll get into heaven is if you have righteousness on the level of me. And say, here, here, why don't you take off your sin and I'll take off my right, righteous robes and we'll switch. And not only that, I'll go to the cross and pay that price for you. Not only that, when you do it, I'll do it again. And when you sin, even 10 seconds later, when you're pulling out of the parking lot and someone cuts you off, I'll do it again. And when you get your order after church today and you get to sitting down at the restaurant and the waiter brings you the wrong thing and you say that thing in your head that you wouldn't say out loud at church, I'll do it again. I'll keep forgiving you and I'll keep forgiving you and I'll keep forgiving you because I chose you. I volunteered for this situation. The whole reason that we're here, the whole reason that we can draw breath and praise this God instead of being beaten down and sent into a crucifixion down to hell, and we deserve bondage and we deserve chains. The only reason we don't have the cross is because Jesus looked at you and said, I choose you. I've counted the cost and I don't weigh and I say this, Jesus for you is everything. All the way from here to eternity, he is your strength. He is your righteousness. He's your breath. He's your hope. And the only thing you have is him. And so this, we're going to do this. We're going to pray. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray this prayer with me. And maybe you may be praying this prayer for the first time. But if you'd like to renew, you can renew today. Let's pray to this Jesus Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, please forgive us of our sins. Thank you for looking down at my life. Thank you for looking at everything that I am and calling on me and saying this, I choose you today. So this is the prayer that I give back to you, Lord. Please forgive me of my sins. Please be the volunteer in my life, switching places with me on the cross. Lord, I confess my sins before you. I don't even need to go through them all. You already know them all, but I confess them to you and I call you my Messiah. And today is the day that I will just walk and follow you for the rest of my days. And I will be receiving all the victory and all the promises, not because I've earned it, because you gave it. You stood in between me sin and death, and I will be released forever in freedom of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.